Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, your host for episode 76 of the podcast. Today, I'll be talking with Nicholas Rowe, researcher and educator based in Finland. His book, The Realities of Completing a PhD, How to Plan for Success, was published by Routledge in 2021. The book is part of the series Routledge Research in Education. Pick some branch of the private sector. Pick one in the professions or trades in government, and you'll do. Finance, gas and water installation, public policy, doesn't matter which. Now, imagine that the training programs there, whether on the job or prerequisite and pre-application, imagine these training programs first vetted applicants, really scrutinized them in order to ensure that they qualify, and then these programs admitted these people to years-long training courses, costly training, costly not just for the trainee, but also for the business or institute. And then these programs, well, and then the programs simply went hands-off. That is, they let the trainees more or less fend for themselves. They implemented no measures to ensure trainee success, didn't even so much as set a practicable time length to the course. The programs even somewhat perversely decided to admit many, many, many more trainees than positions available to these people in future, while at the same time the programs just kind of band-aided any problems arising personally for the trainees, problems as serious as mental health issues. And then the program simply allowed general circumstances to drive away up to half of the trainees, while also the programs never thought through to the foreseeable demand there would be for the trainees' skill sets upon course completion. I think you'll agree that this would be the apex of personnel mismanagement, not to mention a squandering of resources and a disregard for individual careers. And precisely these reasons deter really everybody in business, or the trades and professions, or in government, from operating in this manner. 
However, very many universities very much do operate in this manner when it comes to their PhD programs, so that for very many PhD potentials or very many PhD candidates, the above scenario is much, much too often the norm, because the above scenario is pretty much how institutions will run their PhD programs. A bad situation. And that is why today's guest, Nicholas Rowe, has made that crucial first step into improving a situation from bad to better. He's gathered the data we have, and he's indicated the data we need to gather. It is true, there is not a lot of data on the PhD out there, and the data that is is sparse and at times not particularly robust, but Nicholas Rowe handles what we have with care, and Nicholas Rowe goes one further. Based on the current state of knowledge, which his book The Realities of Completing a PhD really established in the first place, Nicholas Rowe provides today's potential PhD students and current PhD candidates with a wealth of advice on how to make the best decisions for their own goals and their own situations. The realities of completing a PhD is important research that gets immediate application in its target audience, that small select group of students who decide to complete academia's highest degree, the PhD. So let's begin today's episode, Nicholas Rowe and the realities of completing a PhD. Hi, Nicholas. Welcome to Scholarly Communication. Hello, Daniel. Thank you for having me. Your dedication to the book caught my attention. It's um, a dedication to an anonymous set of people, which is really quite felt in the expression it gives to what you think of that anonymous set of people, the PhDs out there, the PhDs past, present, and future, the ones with, and I quote, pure grit, determination, and resilience have made their way through, the others who've perhaps not reached the finish line, and so on. Um it's it's a kickoff to a book that wants to be research and also um, guide that uh, really shows where your heart lies. It is. Um, when I was looking at this area uh, to the first sort of, uh, you know, sort of insight into it, uh, my own teaching in the UK was mainly undergraduate professional courses, uh, and I do student development and that sort of thing. And then at the end of each year, each sort of stage of the program, uh, I would get thoroughly examined on how students did, what their feedback was, what my success rate was, and that sort of thing. And their success, uh, you know, came very much back on me. Uh, and I was held accountable for it. And yet, when we look at the PhD programs, and it's not just PhD programs in a particular country, this is worldwide. None of them are particularly much better than another. It's quite obvious that the same uh, accountability doesn't apply. And so we have thousands of people around the world are encountering all sorts of problems uh, and they either have to battle through and try and work things out for themselves or they simply drop out. And when we look at the amount of people who do drop out, given that these people, as you earlier said, are personally vetted, they are perhaps, you know, the brightest of the bright, uh, taking on the top level qualification you can get in a university. Um, these dropout 
rates are astounding. Uh, and also, when we see uh, people's experience whilst they're on these programs and what it does to them, and the way that, especially in social media, where perhaps people can give a certain amount of voice to what they're experiencing and what they're going through, um, I came to the conclusion that, no, uh, this isn't really uh, an optimal way to run any form of academic program or any form of service, um, you know, for a university. Uh, and it doesn't do us, you know, well to uh, set up our future researchers and investigators on independent careers, either inside or outside academia. Yeah, and that's the thing that really catches my attention, what you're referring to there, this exceptionality of the PhD programs. As you say, and as I've experienced myself, the the levels of accountability for an instructor up to the master's level even are very high. And this is also reflected in the data. Um, the book is, is, is data rich. There's uh, data there so that we understand what's going on as best as we can. There's data there also in the second part of the book to provide really grounded advice uh, to PhDs. But that's, that's quite the point. The, the data up to the master's level is fairly robust and you can make a good picture of what's going on and then it just fizzles out. <laughs> um, just to give an example, Australia is reporting in some corners 75% completion rates on their PhDs or 15% completion rates on their PhDs. I mean, you might as well not have the numbers if that's the range of error, right? Yes. Uh, if, if we look at our individual national reporting things, uh, let's say an, another one, the UK, uh, the overall general rate reported is 70%. But there will be faculties and institutions that go along uh, as low as 14.5%. You know, so to take on, you know, that many people and have that many people sort of get through at the end um, is fairly much a failure, I think, you know, for any institution or faculty. And yet there is but what there is very li little accountability or acknowledgement even. Yeah. And, and, and I suppose that's the, the question that, that I'd like to ask. I mean, do you have any theories as to why? The PhD, which on the one end is actually essential to the running of academia, right? Nowadays, it's it's impossible to take any sort of faculty position without already having a PhD and without having the ability to research. Um, that's 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 sort of the prerequisite, and yet it seems to be taken so lightly. Uh, is it a matter of there just being so few people, or the people there are just so willing to put up with it, or why is it that we're not? We don't know what's going on in the PhD. Well, I I think that uh, there are two particular issues. Uh, first is the idea of uh, autonomy for universities. Uh, the idea of autonomy for universities uh, was set up and basically agreed on uh, so that outside influences didn't manipulate what universities were looking at how they conducted their research and basically uh, manipulate their findings and so they were free from external influence and that is thoroughly agreeable and laudable and, and I think that sort of any 
um, civilized society should have that freedom of investigation in place. But it's been taken one step further, and this inviability has also hindered people from looking at the system itself. And so now we get a lot of practices that occur within universities that if the public was made aware of them, and they are actually becoming increasingly sort of visible, um, they would say that these practices or behaviours are unacceptable in the country's national or the national society. And so they should not be allowed. And yet, it's this ivory tower idea has allowed people to keep things in house and not make things transparent. So that's the first thing. The second thing is the idea, and again, it stems from a correct idea, that a PhD uh, should, at the end of it, produce somebody who is an independent researcher. So at the end, once they've come through their program, you should be able to take on that person, give them a topic, and whatever it is that they need to do to research that topic and come up with results, they can do it themselves. They don't have to even have been trained to do it beforehand. They can go out and get their own skills and information and tackle that particular issue. And so because it's independent, people have used that as an excuse to go hands off and almost sort of decline any responsibility for the outcome. It's not my PhD, it's that person's PhD, and whether they come through it or not, it is their business. And I think that this divestment of responsibility is also a contributory factor to the experiences that PhD candidates around the world are going through. So this seems to be, if we were to find a term for both of these factors, which um, I, I can very much see in operation as you describe them there, it seems to be uh, perhaps an overglorification of academic freedom and not maybe grounding some of that in realities of what needs to happen at the institutional level or at the personal level. Uh, to put it nicely, yes, it is uh, a <laughs> or, or sort of an overglorification of academic freedom. Uh, but it's uh, from if you look at what actually does go on, and and it's a completely se separate subject, and so we won't necessarily go into that in any detail here. But the degree of bad behaviour or bad practice that people are recorded as committing or indulging or tolerating or condoning um, is bad to the, to the extent where it's irresponsible. And, and again, sort of even to the letter of the law, uh, it would be viewed as irresponsible and unacceptable. And yet people do. They, once they're in the PhD program, unless they take themselves out they have to basically tolerate whatever comes their way. And so it might just be somebody who's not a particularly good mentor, somebody who's not a particularly good teacher. Uh, it might be fairly sort of, you know, sort of contradictory uh, advice given from different quarters, or it might be genuine neglect, abuse, 
uh, or, you know, uh, disengagement. Uh, and they make things very, very, very difficult for somebody to tolerate, and yet they do tolerate them, uh, act often at cost to themselves. This this puts me in mind of, um, this would go beyond the PhD into the postdoc area, but, but I, I'm put in mind of it because of your second factor where you talk about independent researcher, which is clearly internationally agreed upon as one of the aims of, of the PhD. And yet in the sciences particularly, we have uh, the postdoc position and I'm, I'm just thinking of a, a working scientist. That's a podcast at um, at Nature magazine um, in 2020. They had a whole series on the postdoc, and I'm quoting from um, the moderator there. She says, uh, Julie Gould. She says, "It's well known that in the European and U.S. academic systems, there are more postdocs than the system can support." And that many who aspire to become academic researchers are not able to find the job of their dreams and not for lack of effort and not for lack of skill, but just for lack of jobs. And we go in to the rest of that episode, finding out that actually postdoc has somewhere between 30 and 40 different possible variations of its title. And there are serious researchers saying serious things about the motivation behind that. And that is seems seems to go against what the universities themselves are uh, committing to when they say we're 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 making a phd and we're we're providing a person who is is ready to research what they're saying in this podcast is that these postdocs or whatever it happens to be called um are in a sense being used by very many pi's who have an incentive to use this research power for their own um, projects. In other words, they've got people who they've trained for a number of years. They've got people who are committed to um, this or that article or the series of articles that's been put out. And actually, the postdoc position is meant as a career progression and not a research hand in somebody else's larger project. Yes. Um, well, the OECD has uh, gone on record and recognized that uh, universities rely on precariously employed postdocs. And yet when you ask people at the beginning of a PhD or even beforehand uh, what it is they want to do, um, in all fields, slightly bar engineering and computer science, but in the rest, including pure sciences, uh, 55% or more people will say that they are aiming for an academic career. And yet at no place does uh, academia say these are your honest chances of, get, of undertaking an academic career. So these people, they go through, they struggle through their PhD, and then they get told that you do hold the highest academic qualification that we can possibly give you. However, it's not good enough. And so we're going to pay you a very small amount and we're going to invite you to take on a postdoc, uh, be it one, be it up to seven postdocs, at which point these people have invested so much time and money that it's, again, very, very difficult for them to go back. And the carrot is dangled in front of them. You know, if you want to succeed in academia, if you want a permanent job, 
which I don't think is still too much to ask. Um, you know, you have to do this. And so, again, they're in the situation, if they want to get it through, they have to acquiesce to the terms and conditions that they find themselves in. And they but hope to, that they come out the other end. I, I hate to, to jump in, but isn't that exactly the point where the universities then need to be called out on? Because if the PhD is as it's more or less uh, understood throughout the world as being, you are now ready to research. And now years upon years are being tacked on in low paid labor positions um, where essentially you're still preparing. Yeah. I mean, the post, and I don't know, I guess in a sense, the postdoc title itself is an oxymoron, isn't it? <laughs> It is. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, the sorts of behaviours that you hear of and see, and even this sort of uh, employment sort of uh, thing, it is a situation that you would normally associate uh, at best to a high control group. In other words, uh, we get people in and we coerce them into accepting conditions uh, in the hope that they will achieve something or gain something and be rewarded at the end of it. And yet, uh, you know, a very few of them actually make it to the end uh, and and get what they, you know, had hoped to get. Um, in the worst description of that, you could call it cult behaviour. And so when we look at sort of the attributes common to these sort of groups, we uh, encounter phrases like uh, elite status, dominant leadership, suppression of dissent, unified views. Uh, we have little or form, uh, formal or external accountability. Uh, extreme measures are taken for, by members to succeed. Uh, the group creates feelings of shame, guilt and false hope. Uh, members radically change their lives and are frequently expected to relocate. Uh, Non-leader members are systematically exploited. Uh, members are recruited to bring in money. Uh, the system is orientated to economic gain, directly or indirectly. And members are overworked and poorly remunerated. So um, stop me if I'm wrong, but uh, I think most people could associate every single one of those <laughs> uh, markers to academic, you know, career development. Um, and every single one of those markers is thoroughly evidenced. And that despite the fact that if we get back again to the principles, and, and I agree with you, I've seen all that around me and experienced some of it myself. Um, so <laughs> I'm entirely on board, and I'm sure any of our listeners who have gone through the PhD process will will agree there as well. Um, but if we get back to the principle of this idea of um, becoming a good independent researcher, essentially you could look at it as we are now preparing somebody to cross what might be called and has been called elsewhere that invisible line into proper research, right? And that's perhaps one of the, and this is something that the book focuses on and gives plenty of attention to valuably, I would say, is the misnomers and the misconceptions that a PhD potential has when entering into a program. So if we think of that idea that you're crossing an invisible line and actually now doing research. You're not learning anymore. It becomes apparent that, and you state this explicitly, to become a P 
PhD who is successful, you you stop being a good student, right? You can't base your idea on what my PhD is going to be like or your decision to do it or not to do it on how good of a track record you had in um you know on on your transcript that's that's not necessarily what's going to give you that information yes uh it's it, it's quite difficult for people because um they've been a student up until the point that they engage with a PhD. And now uh, various countries, for example, Australia, to a certain degree, the UK, we're beginning to use the phrase PhD researcher in place of PhD student. And that that's a bit of a double-edged sword. Um, one on one side, it's quite good because we're not belittling our fairly well-experienced adults who've performed very well in their previous academic, uh, you know, endeavours. They've they've got their first degree. They've often got their master's degree. Uh, they've to get onto their programmes. They've been examined, and they are the best of the best, you know. Uh, and so, for these people to arrive on a PhD program and be treated as a lowly student again is quite difficult. And quite often for things like uh, some of the pure science lab work and that sort of thing, apart from techniques where people have to maybe learn something new, you know, uh, they're there operating fairly much autonomously, you know, to get their results. And then they will bind them together into some sort of thesis or write up and be awarded their PhD degree at the end. And so um, they are working in research, even at that beginning stage. And although the universities might provide them with some courses and support to give them additional skills that they need, you know, um, it's, it's not, they're not learning as such, you know, and they're definitely sort of not learning from their supervisors. They're normally just being directed or managed by their supervisors. So, so that freedom is quite good. Um, however, that freedom also encourages people to step back and say, well, if you're a researcher and not a student, I don't have to teach you. And we haven't developed the mentorship side of managing PhD researchers or students sufficiently well. And people aren't given the time uh, or remuneration in their employed schedules um, to embrace that as part of their paid role. And so lots of supervisors will step back from this you know, and dedicate what they can. Some are better than others, naturally, you know. Um, but lots of people say, you know, I haven't got time for it, you know. And so balancing the demands of a new researcher so that they can uh, carry on independently is an important thing. And for my view, it's best to load all of this skill building up at the beginning so that they can hit the ground running really in their PhD, especially if we're going to time limit it to three years. Yeah, I mean, that's a whole other issue that, that comes up in the book is how long all this takes. But I'd, I'd like to hover above this topic still a bit more of 
of um, right the initial stage of the PhD, and as you say, how 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 it is that you perhaps would best prepare people if it's if it's front loaded or not. I, I think I think it begins on just the areas that you've been talking about. This idea that. They've been a student up until their PhD, and now they're not meant to be a student anymore. And that and that happens almost overnight. And their teachers, or their supervisors, or their instructors, or their PIs, if you're in the if the, you're in the sciences, um, they've also had much the same experience, right? I mean, it's even possible that you've done your masters in one lab, and then you know the neighboring lab is where you end up going into your PhD. So you you know these people actually as your professors, and now you're meant to be your, their quasi uh, colleagues. And it, it doesn't sound like anyone on either side is being prepared for this. It should be clear for you know the, the instructor side, more or less the teacher side, that as you say, we're moving from a, a teacher framework into a mentorship framework. And it should be clear on, on the student side, on the um, PhD side, that you're not studying anymore, you're researching. I mean, this all sounds quite simple when we put it in these terms, but what you see again and again, if you work with PhDs, and I do with PhDs writing, is that, you know, they're still writing for their professor and they haven't learned to write for their colleagues. That's just one example. Yeah. Uh, yes. Um, I, I, I share your view uh, exactly. Um, one of the things that I do is that I write or I language edit lots of uh, university works, papers and theses here in Finland uh, for, uh, you know, sort of people who are using English as a second language. And I find that incredibly that they are writing for their supervisors, you know, and not themselves. And when you do find somebody who's suddenly developed um, the confidence almost to have their own opinions and explore them and express them and come to definite conclusions. For me, that person has become an independent researcher, you know, uh, and is not performing for somebody else. And we have a culture at the moment in PhDs around the world where uh, the people who are funding or taking on PhDs uh, into their programs, they're almost treating them like workers, somebody to do this work for me, for my program, and not really uh, concerning themselves with the individual themselves and the fact that they're doing a PhD. And they need this PhD to progress with their intended career. I can only back that up with um, the Working Scientist podcast that I referred to earlier. And um, also I've heard used for um, that position where you say they're workers, uh, the term results producer. <laughs> so in other words... You know, these, these people are meant to be further trained or are meant to be doing their own independent research, and they find that the bulk of their work is just flowing into somebody else's. Yes. Uh, you know, they, they will sit at a lab bench, uh, get loads and loads of stuff together, and all of a sudden their findings, their work, is just part of somebody else's project. And somehow they've got to get some individual sort of thesis of their own out of this at the end of it. Uh, the, the amount of people who are, 
you know, sort of trying to work out how to write articles and how to produce their own outputs alongside working on a program and finding that very, very difficult when they're being treated basically as a worker. Uh, That's one of the uh, difficult uh, situations that people are trying to manage. Um, When you're trying to manage that for sort of three years, you know, uh, fairly much under the pressure of, you know, producing results, um, you know, that fit with the program and and develop the program forward. Uh, It's quite difficult for the PhD uh, researcher as an individual. Uh, and, And again, I think that this is one of the main issues that causes them problems that either are results in them finding things very, very difficult. Uh, And they're not predisposed to finding things difficult in academia. They've normally done very well. Uh, But it it also, I think, affects dropout rates. And as soon as you look at the numbers of people that drop out and the amount of money and resources that we put into them, for them to drop out, it has severe economic implications as well as educational implications, you know, for the nations involved. And so uh, although I, you know, see around the world all sorts of government and educational bodies indicating their support for PhDs and postgrads and students in general, um, with, unless they manage this and perhaps intrusively start to manage this then this situation just replicates and and that's another story that we hear from people is once they get into a situation they replicate behaviors that they themselves have experienced and they almost become normalized uh and i i think that's a very slippery slope as a societal issue yeah, I mean, anyone who works in academia would would recognize all that you're talking about, and this normalization process is is what's so invidious about it, because you then you know you take that as your working conditions, and yet um, they're they're far from ideal, and they hamper performance in in all kinds of ways. I, I think also what you just said there about the dropout rates itself. I mean, if I'm getting the figure right, you talk about acceptance rates into these programs between ten to fifteen percent, sort of an overall figure, which in itself shows you know an elite group. And if we're having dropout rates of, I think one of the figures you give from 1950 to 2010 for the U.S. is in around 60% of people dropping out. So, I mean, that's really high. Uh, and a stark reminder, really, that this idea that the independent researcher has now been created and is ready to go on their PhD, or even after they finish their PhD, is ready at that point literally to hit the ground and start doing you know original research is, is just a false assumption nowadays, apparently. I mean, because... This just this idea of independence as as you know this ability to work um, entirely under your own um, guidance is is again if we think of just the sciences but it doesn't have to be limited to the sciences um, no one researches independently anymore they research in teams collaboration is you know the the catchword there. And again, I just think of another very interesting podcast series from the Working Scientists on, on Nature. They talked about team PhD. And despite all the advantages that that approach seemed to 
offer, they had to come up with the you know conclusion that essentially, well, the institutional structures of universities are just not going to allow it because there has to be a grade. <laughs> and I mean, I would say it seems like grading makes the student. It's a researcher that we're trying to make, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Uh, uh, uh everybody's experience is is different um and for my own experience uh all of the areas that i have researched um and published on and written on and that sort of thing um have i've always done it as an independent individual researcher simply because nobody else has been working in my areas um and so i've you know i'm i'm quite used to going it alone uh, to the point where, where when I did my own PhD, I, I think that I probably went into the university maybe 10 or 15 times in the entire time. The rest of the time I was working independently, uh, simply because no, there was nobody else uh, working in my area, you know, who had an interest in, in sort of what I was doing. And, you know, until I had something, you know, to put out at the end of, as an output. Um, and so it's, it's, it's quite difficult uh, to equip people. But I was fortunate in that I'd done a lot of this sort of research and stuff and independent sort of, you know, skills development and stuff. I, I'd done it before my PhD. And so I was quite okay about finding my own information, uh, presenting it in different ways, you know, and that sort of thing. And these are a lot of the skills that we can preload um, at no particular cost to an institution. Um, and that way, somebody is better equipped to enter our program. And as, as I said, you know, if we can get people um, having a realistic view of what they want to do what they will be doing, how they can can do it. Then we can start their three year clock running when they when they enter the doors and say, right, go ahead and do it. And then you can claim independent researcher. But until somebody has got that skills and support, they don't really know what they're headed in for or why uh, and what it's going to be like. Uh, and so. You know, again, this will help perhaps improve people's experiences and improve the overall performance rate. One of the other things I'd just like to mention, um, and I sort of don't want to go on to in, into this, you know, particularly deeply, but we we singled out the USA and they've got a a, a ten or a fifty year uh, performance sort of figure of a sixty one percent you know, uh, you know, completion rate, which isn't particularly good. But I applaud the USA systems that has actually compiled and tracked and published those, you know, statistics um, on a nationwide sort of level and openly, you know, for such a long time, because the majority of countries do not. When you go onto a university website as a prospective student you're bombarded with we had so many thousand sort of you know graduates last year or we have this or we have various people in employment after their you know sort of qualifications uh, or degrees are awarded and yet they don't talk about the people who didn't make it and so when we look at you know sort of countries that have got these low figures you know 
half as many again did not make it. And so your chances of success are slim. You know, when we talk about employment, they don't talk about the sort of employment and whether it's rewarding or commensurate with having the highest degree that is, you know, issued by a university. And so we don't know if somebody has got a tenured position in a university or they're flipping burgers, you know, because the criteria that universities use and also the academic reporting institutions and bodies around the world, you know, are very, very vague and they're not transparent. And so it's very difficult for people to see what they're getting into until they've committed themselves. And one of the difficult things for individuals is once you've opened your mouth and let people know that you are taking on the biggest academic challenge that is possible, then it's really, really difficult for people to go back. You know, lots and lots of people have got or they feel that lots of people have got expectations of them, hopes of them. They've got their own hopes and dreams. And to go back on that is very, very difficult. And so they do then succumb to the system and they just go through it in the hope that it ends. They get given their sort of degree and things work out well. And when we look at these completion rates, that's not the case. When we look at the uh, rates of uh, mental health and well-being, uh, when we look at the rates of suicide, you know, that is not the case. And so although these sound like general comments, they sound maybe a bit sensationalist, when we look at the actual data, um, you know, if you look at the fact that uh, postgraduate students are more than 10 times as likely to experience moderate to severe depression and anxiety compared to the general population, this isn't because they're susceptible for it in any way. It's because the process that they've encountered and gone through has had this effect on them. And it that process is specific to that group and their experience. And 10 times more susceptible or susceptible, you know, to these sorts of things on a serious sort of level, uh, you know, it's not really an acceptable situation. And yet universities and university bodies don't seem willing to deal with it. They just dismiss, you know, these sorts of problems as young student problems, you know, uh, and they're very, um, you know, they diminuate a lot. Uh, with students as if they need caring for and and the fact is we've got a lot of conditions uh, and circumstances that we know exist that we can improve on that would help improve these conditions but we don't do it and so um, if going back to the book if the pointers that I give for universities to consider different aspects of the of the journey you know um strike a chord then i really hope that people will address these you know in their programs um you know and from an institutional or hopefully national sort of perspective they're all quite simple yeah there are very many uh, practical uh, suggestions that 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 just as you say simple i would say logical yeah no 
consequential that come out of um, the problems that you point up in by using the data to show us, as you say, you know, 10% more likely to have mental health problems. I mean, this is just, <laughs> it's not like people who are so predisposed are also just more likely to make PhDs. There's something wrong with what's going on in their program, clearly. Well, yeah, I, I, it, sorry, I, I, I have to correct you then. They're not 10% more likely. Uh, excuse 10 me, times 10 times more likely. Exactly. Thank you. Yes, exactly. That's what I meant. Ten times, ten times more likely. I mean, we're dealing with a major, you know, blip in the statistics here. This, this, this doesn't make sense. And um, I, I would like to go into some of those concrete uh, suggestions. But again, out of our conversation so far, and out of my impression of the book, what I see is that the PhD landscape, the the PhD territory, seems to be a very uneven one. It's it, it's one that hasn't been let's say, laid out properly and given its own infrastructure. It seems to also be one that might have just been left brack to deal with on its own, which seems to be very likely from what we find out are some of the factors that are keeping people from, you know, actually reaching in there and, 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 and figuring out, okay, how do we get this to work better for more people? It seems to be a, a, almost a, a leftover from a previous time in some cases. Um, just the fact that you know the PhD needs to be done in the sciences on an individual basis, and it's only the grading that keeps us from being able to have people actually start researching as they will the rest of their careers. Um, I've had one guest on the program who uh, teaches English for academic purposes, and and pretty much labeled in the STEM fields a PhD as a as a, as a written document, a non-starter. I mean, a person in a PhD program in the STEM fields is 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 learning nothing about writing for research purposes there. <laughs> you know, I mean, there are now programs where it's about um, you publish uh, and you discuss this also in your book, you know, the different types of theses that are out there. The Basically, the, the published version is one of them. Um, but it's not as widespread as we can say that 50% of the programs are doing that. And it might even be in the STEM fields better that a hundred percent of them are doing that. But I suppose what I'm getting at is this, this uneven terrain, this, this, this strange place called the PhD. Why are we having them as you've referred to before as students, even sometimes being called PhD students, and yet they're not meant to be acting like students. It would it would appear that this is one of the cruxes that is causing so many of the other problems. This idea that the PhD needs to have been prepared better to be researching. My example before, just to give this some sort of concrete business to it, uh, how you write changes when you're actually researching or if you're just writing something to get a grade. I mean, those are two very different documents. We're putting these people into that position to be researching, but we're actually treating them like students. Yeah, uh, I think it ties in with something that you mentioned earlier. You said that it's the PhD process is almost sort of going back in time. You know, it's it's uh, not only old fashioned; it's almost antiquated. And I think one of the things that we haven't let go of and we almost reinforce through our behaviours is a PhD being an apprenticeship. The amount of um, 
otherwise, you know, you know, sort of fair and well-meaning supervisors who actually share this view and openly voice it and say it's an apprenticeship. And so if you looked at sort of, you know, sort of I don't know, stonemasonry in the Middle Ages or something, the apprenticeship model of taking someone on, developing their skills, examining them at the end, and then admitting them to a guild or something afterwards, that's a developmental apprenticeship. That's absolutely fine. But having somebody come to work for you on your PhD program and then failing fairly much leaving them alone and then examining them in the harshest of manners, you know, with no regard to the, you know, the consequences of a positive or negative outcome. Uh, that That's not proper apprenticeship even, even by Middle Ages standards. And yet, again, this is something that we don't voice, we don't acknowledge it. It's It's like the emperor's new clothes, you know, uh, we have, you know, people professing one thing, professing it loudly and almost aggressively and defending it under the guise of academic freedom and autonomy. And yet there are a lot of little boys in the crowd who can see that the emperor is actually naked and, you know, nothing is really being done about it. So um, in, in a way, that's one of the sort of, you know, roles that I felt that sort of I'd almost fallen into. You know, I, I didn't want to be the person who points a finger and calls out, you know, and necessarily brings shame on the academy. And yet, when we look at the statistics behind every single one of these areas, until we do hold our hands up and are ashamed of actually what is happening and also admit that we're bright and able people and quite often we are well resourced you know even though we profess to the other you know to the contrary um we can do something to improve this if we just need the will to do it and in a way the first part of this book was pointing out the facts you know, they are facts, they are published data, they're from lots and lots of different people, and lots and lots of different places, and they're all big studies. And so we can't deny them. And so once we put our hand up to them, then perhaps, you know, it'll motivate us to towards doing something about it. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
Yeah, and that's 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 one of the one of the two major achievements of the book. The other is what I want to turn to in just a moment. The the second part, preparing your PhD application. But just as you've said, I, I'd really like to emphasize that we have here the facts, and I don't think anyone who is involved in academia is going to be all that shocked by these. But to have them in black and white, to have them in tables and figures, and to see what they actually are is certainly going to provide encouragement, as you say, to put up your hand, because it would appear so often that people accept unacceptable circumstances because they're incentivized to do so. I mean, the people who really care about the PhD are the people who are most closely involved in it. The PhDs themselves, or the people who have just finished one, or the people who are planning to do one. And the incentives there are clearly going to be, I want to get my PhD. Yes. Uh, this this idea of acknowledging all of these facts once they're put in front of us and saying, this is uh, a, an unacceptable situation. We can't allow it to continue. Um, it, it it is a big thing, and uh, again, sort of you know, treating the book as a, a sort of an output. Looking at what how it's been received so far, uh, if you go onto the website, you know, uh, the the publisher's website, there are various sort of uh, you know reviews of the book, and they're all laudatory. And yet, if you put the book in book into Google. There is only one prominent review, and it's done by a very prominent you know, person whose job is student PhD support. And they say, honestly say, this, this book presents nothing new. And, and you're thinking, you know, what what more do you need, you know, to make you acknowledge what's in front of you? You know, um, it's, it's really, really difficult. Uh, for people to to grasp this, you know, to look in the mirror and and see this, and it it, it doesn't mean that you know individuals are bad or they're deliberately harming people or deliberately negligent or or performing to you know a substandard, you know, they, it's not an accusatory, accusatory you know sort of set of data. This is a factual sort of set of data that just represents you know the situation um and so no, the book is very well balanced in that i mean in tone i i noticed nothing of accusation for sure and as you say it's paradoxical that the <laughs> one of your best reviews from one of your most prestigious reviewers comes out as there's nothing new in this book i mean <laughs> what more do we need to hear um just as just as you as you're making the point um i i, I would like if, if if we could though to switch gears slightly and move into the second part where there we start to see immediately the application of these findings for the PhD application itself, um, the process and and the writing up of it and so on. And and then we have a number of chapters about selecting topic, um, the process of applying, the writing of the research proposal, which is certainly a chapter I'd like to say a word or two on um, here, the writing being one of, um, as my listeners will know, one of my favorite topics here on uh, scholarly communication, life study balance. Yeah. Another major issue, uh, choosing a supervisor, right? I mean, I think there's probably PhD uh, potentials out there who might not have realized that they have that choice, right? <laughs> um, or even PhD uh, candidates who might not realize as you go into uh, um, great depth on that they actually have the right to change if um, their uh, research is suffering under bad supervision. 
Yeah. Um, when I when I was putting this together, um, you know, I, I felt sort of almost sort of guilty as I was sort of, you know, assembling all these statistics for the first part. I thought, oh, God, this is really doom and gloom. Um, and I, I, the intent is not to put people off doing a PhD, you know, or to belittle it in any way. Um, and so I wanted to sort of help people. And then I realized that the book actually needed two halves. And so when I was looking at the different issues that people face and how to advise them to prepare them, you know, for what, you know, may lie ahead, I thought, how do you put all of this sort of stuff together and and present it in an understandable way? you know, that follows a sort of pattern. So you've got somebody who's maybe just finished their master's or they've been in industry for a while and feels like sort of, you know, stepping up to the sort of next level. Uh, Or even, and there's a large community who do it, just taking on a PhD, um, almost like a hobby. You know, it's, it's a personal challenge. You know, they're interested in the subject and they want to research it. You know, how do you prepare them and set them up for addressing that? And so that's why I came up with this idea of the PhD checklist, which is at the back of the book. And one of the most fundamental questions that you can ask someone, but one that a lot of us probably would have been very poor at answering when we started out is actually why do you want to do a phd and so very few people can actually sort of answer the question of sort of what a phd actually is what it will do for them what the objective of it is what it will do for other people and that's before we get into the situation where it's going to cost you time, it's going to cost you money, it's going to impact on your family and relations, it's going to change your life, you are not going to be able to spend time doing some of the things that you're used to doing, um, because you're going to be doing something PhD orientated. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but I remember when I was doing my PhD, I can honestly say that there was not a single day where I wasn't thinking about my PhD, you know. It, no, that, it that's me as well. Yeah. I mean, that's... Uh... You, know, you, have, you have books by the side of your bed because you wake up in the middle of the night gibbering and you just had this light bulb moment and you're frightened that when you wake up in the morning, it'll be gone. And so you jot these things down. You send yourself a quick email, you know, on your phone before you go back to sleep, you know. Um, <laughs> so it, it's thoroughly enjoyable and the freedom you get through doing it it's great, but the practical issues that you encounter, um, you may encounter them, you may not encounter them, you know. Um, but all of these sorts of things, they're very, very important for the person who's doing their PhD, and they're very important for the person who's supervising their PhD. And so even if we'd love to help people, even if, you know, we've got an interest in what they're doing, you know, um, we might not be equipped to supervise them. We might not have the skills. We might not have the time, you know. Uh, and so all of these sorts of things will come through in what you were talking about as the research proposal. And yet lots of people can't really... Uh, or haven't got enough thought and information to put one of those together to begin with. 
and various systems around the world. They let people come through the doors and then build up their research proposal. And then they have it examined and then it, they either sort of, you know, get, get progression or they don't. And if people can give this sort of thing uh, some thought and build it mentally or on paper themselves before they even start, it might not be a complete document, you know, and, and it's definitely not sort of, you know, cast in stone. Um, but if they can do this, then they will be able to get a far better picture of what it is that they want to do and how to present it to somebody else. And also a better picture of what it is that they'll be about when they actually are researching. Because when they're actually researching, the thing that gets lost when you're a student, lost to view and certainly not emphasized in your lectures or your seminars, is the communication aspect. I mean, even the most hardcore natural scientist in the lab with the numbers and the hard drive and the figures and so on, he or she is going to be spending about half of their days reading and writing. I mean, I've heard that from all quarters. And that's, that's, that's just the reality of it. I mean, science is built on what you'll be able to communicate to somebody else. I mean, those are the results that get into future studies. And it's got to happen quick. And I suppose that is one of those things that needs to get imported to the undergrad or master's study level, is that you are able, when you finish that, to write a research proposal. You're not able necessarily to carry it out. You've got to learn how to do that over a number of years period. That's normal, right? But that you understand, for example, that you're not explaining your uh, the facts in your field to somebody. You're having a conversation with them about those given facts or not given facts to interpret them and make sense of them. I mean, th these are entirely different uh, functions when it comes to communication. And it's not something that's clear to most people. This is where uh, most students, and this is where I find it's just essential that it get incorporated into any field of study from the humanities all the way over to the uh, uh, physical uh, sciences that a that communication experts, people from you know the the writing center to just take one example right there's other places that they could be coming from but the writing center be brought in and working shoulder shoulder to shoulder with the people in in the disciplines the faculty members and are communicating let's say the rhetoric of science and research at the same time as the research and the science is being is being taught yeah i mean sort of you know looking at this from uh, an applicant basis, somebody who's got this idea that they want to propose and that sort of thing, they, they have to justify it and express it in a way that somebody can clearly see what it is that they want to do, why they want to do it, and how they potentially want to go about it. And it might be their own idea that they're producing as a, a completely new research proposal or it might be orientated to how they're going to fit into a published program that is advertised for phd applicants so in other words what equips you to take on these tasks you know how you can go about it um what you want out of it and that sort of thing and so writing for different purposes for different audiences uh is 
a huge skill because people are going to need these communication skills um, in their application, when they present ideas, when they talk to the people uh, in person. Um, you know, uh, everybody's systems and processes are different, but the key skills that you need are are fairly much the same. And if you don't need them at one stage, you're going to need them at another. And so when you, you know, sort of uh, encourage people to take on a PhD, you're hoping that they've read lots of different types of material. And just that reading about them, you know, and maybe sort of, you know, sort of taking courses on them or producing some sort of writing about them, you know, is going to get them used to producing their thoughts and arguments in different sorts of ways for different purposes. And so that's one of the key skills that uh, you can front load to PhD preparation, you know, so that when people, you know, begin their work, they can instantly talk about what sort of outputs they want to produce, what sort of writings they need to produce, uh, and just go straight into it. They can find their own information, find their own voice, as it were. I I very much agree that a a lot of this can be front-loaded, for sure, because I think one of the biggest issues when it comes to rhetoric and communication is, is just awareness raising, so that... People see what's going on in a text. People understand that there are different audiences. People see that um, the one text and the other have different purposes and therefore differ and not just different formats that you need to fill in differently. I mean, all this is transferable. I entirely agree. I would say, though, that in the, in the, in the spirit of apprenticeship, which we were talking about earlier as being one model probably the most effective model of running a PhD or even postdoc work, it would also make a lot of sense that that sort of training continue on in the real work. So, for example, that first articles are accompanied by, let's say, communication experts who can you know, be at the person's side, whether it happens to be the PI themselves, if they have the time, or people again from a writing center or a writing lab who um, have been trained in in the area of stem that or or elsewhere social sciences humanities and are able to actually provide content that is usable for that person when they go to write those first few articles or even a first book if it's in the humanities um ideally i agree with you um but the reality is that a lot of institutions will simply say we don't have the resources They'll say that we don't have the writing centre. We don't have the individual with the time to accompany this person. You know, we don't have time to produce courses on these specific communication sort of skills. Um, Whereas before, 10, 20 years ago, we were teaching our academic communication uh, and, and scholarly sort of, you know, sort of attributes, you know, as an individual course and module. And we were introducing stuff, different ways of doing things, and then examining on them, getting them to produce sort of outputs in whatever medium it was, you know, so that they could then take that and apply it to whatever they were doing in the future. 
Uh, but now we're often amalgamating things. We're giving people some examples, uh, telling them to, you know, sort of refer to various resources. And it's not sort of teaching them to the extent where they're being able to replicate this thing as their own skills so well. Uh, and so how we tackle this, I, d- I don't know. But technology-wise, we're... Um, seeing a lot of things like uh, sort of, you know, MOOCs and these online learning programs that are successfully developing skills in people that we can produce specific to our our institutions sort of, you know, sort of aims and, and sort of practices and processes, you know, that we can direct people to before they get to us. And so they can sort of anticipate some of the skills and some of the things that that they're going to need throughout their process, you know, and at least sort of uh, have an idea of how they can go about these things. You know, I I, I totally agree with that. I I feel that, yes, very much can be front loaded, very much can be just as you're saying right now, um, put in online formats. just to take the example of writing, which we're ha- we happen to be on, but I mean, there's very other many skills that someone's going to need um, to research correctly and research um, effectively. Uh, but but just to stick with writing, I mean, there's very much about writing and communication that can be taught, um, you know, asynchronously with online materials. Entirely agree with that. I feel still, though, strongly that a PhD, a postdoc. And I'm going to go so far as faculty members, some of them anyway, um, are going to need or should have the option to take the services of a consultant. And I hear entirely the argument, we don't have the resources for that, they don't have the time for that. Why is it then that we hear PhDs and postdocs talking about the fact that um, I'm I'm a bit lost here. I don't know how <laughs> to write this. I don't know how to put all of my data into a form that someone's going to want to read or understand or to make an impact. And why is it that certain programs, I'm just thinking, for instance, of someone I've had here on the show, Imperial College in, in, in London, where the Academic uh, English Center has actually expanded up to the faculty level, where a faculty member will turn to them and be uh, be advised on issues uh, regarding publishing. I mean, I find that entirely normal because the the flip side to say, okay, well, we don't have the resources and we don't do it means we're not making as good researchers, we're leaving people in the lurch, and we're also not uh, having the impact internationally that we might be able to have. I I understand exactly where you're coming from. Um, I've I've probably processed somewhere in the region of sort of eight to nine hundred papers and theses here in in Finland in regard to academic writing. And one of the things that I do is, as I'm going through the paper, if something is not making sort of particular sense or it's not flowing well or it's not clear or it needs further support i'll give them sort of you know a comment in sort of the track changes thing saying you might want to add that or you might want to look at this or rephrase this you know and it's the sort of thing that somebody does when you're writing with them you know uh when you write with somebody else 
uh, then you share ideas, you know, uh, you question, you know, certain parts of the writing and that sort of thing, and you can improve it. Uh, and so ideally, yes, to have that in-person consultant, you know, is great. But so many institutions say my budget is going towards, you know, producing this and that person is a professor. I shouldn't have to develop their writing. You know, that person is a higher PhD student. You know, they've got to learn. They've got to sort of do it. And so quite often the idea of developing this as a a one-to-one idea uh, gets bounced back from people simply because of potential time and cost. You know, it it takes a long while to meet up with someone and to go through work. Uh, I do all of mine asynchronously, you know, but to to do it sort of one to one as a as a, an actual consultancy is, you know, quite a, an intensive thing for an institution to take on. It will definitely pay off, uh, as as you pointed out, you know, um, but, you know, for them to develop or, or commit the resources to it is a big decision. And it's a decision that very few people are willing to make. Yeah, un- unfortunately so, because I mean, then you find uh, even faculty members turning to author services and um, more yes. or less seeking out in the private sector what it is that they're not getting at their own institution. And and for me, it just shows a fundamental misconception of what is going on in, in the process of communication that, you know, that consultant is being a first reader, is being a vetter of, of structure, is being... You know, somebody who understands generally and if they're trained correctly in this particular discipline, how readers think and the right questions to ask somebody who knows even more about the subject than them. Because two misconceptions arise there. The first is, well, this communication expert is not a microbiologist. How is he or she actually going to say anything of of substance? Yeah, I mean, that's that's not their job. That's yeah. the writer's job. They're not writing it for them. They're putting it into a format that will work out in their field among in the, in the conversation that's happening there. And the second misconception is what it is that they're actually consulting on. It's too often the case that very many universities or administrators or the people who are offering the funding that you're talking about think that really what's happening is commas are being moved around and, you know, verb tenses are being corrected. And, you know, that's Microsoft Word can do that for you. Yes, um, I I, I think sort of to take this a stage further, uh, there is you know, academic writing development and improvement that can go on. But as we're not doing it, people are finding, because they're being pressured to come up with outputs and preferably high-impact outputs, that they're beginning to take shortcuts, you know, um, be it the choice of venue that they're deciding to publish in, uh, how they're publishing, how they're uh, reviewing sort of work, and what counts as quality output um, is changing. And we face a lot of problems. And to overcome those problems, uh, a huge amount of people are beginning to, well, to put it bluntly, to cheat. Uh, And this goes from uh, our PhD students, you know, right at the very, very beginning. Um, There's a a group on Facebook. It's got about 50-odd thousand members. 
uh, and it's unmoderated and it's is centered around a group of people who want to sell uh, services like Quillbot, you know, these things that paraphrasing tools and, and that sort of thing. And ideally, it's great because these people need some help in developing language and formulating their sentence structure and expressing their ideas. But in actual fact, what they're doing is... Uh, rephrasing other people's work in a way that you can't recognize it as somebody else's work anymore and passing off as their own. And so this is theoretically a disturbing thing. But when you look at these services that are being offered by unscrupulous people, the amount of people who are responding to it and saying, I want to do this, I have dropped you a personal message or whatever. And this isn't just PhD students. If we look at our politicians, if we look at our leaders of industry, you know, um, if we look at uh, higher education leaders, the amount of people who have now been coming out as being found guilty of plagiarism and that sort of thing is phenomenal. And it's happening right across the strata simply because people want to get something out and they want the end output recognition without the stuff that goes into building the thing into a quality work that deserves recognition and so we've got a bit of a culture going on and to um to sort of you know back that up there was uh, a survey done quite recently uh with uh something like 6,000 postgraduate students and of something like 51% of them actually admitted, and this is just the ones that admitted, forget the ones who didn't admit it, um, that they had cheated in some way, shape or form and would do so again if they thought it would further their career or outcomes you know, enhance their outcomes. And so we've got this sort of culture going on where academic communication and writing as a skill is sort of being sidelined. And that's a a sad thing that I think where you were saying uh, one-to-one intervention, you know, working alongside somebody could actually build somebody up with the confidence and skills to avoid using any of these you know sort of other routes to achieve an outcome yeah these other routes routes which kind of perversely lead to the autonomy and the independence that this whole program is supposed to <laughs> but that's not the idea that we were thinking of when we said autonomous and and independent that you go out and and, and buy things on your own um for sure and, and and i would argue i mean this is perhaps my own opinion. Um, But I I would certainly argue that there are people who are taking these, uh, let's say, devious means to uh, reach their research goals, their degree goals, who actually are extremely fit in their subject matter. And I think what Mm -hmm. daunts a lot of people is indeed the communication process, right? If if what you're looking at when you're thinking of your PhD thesis is, let's say you're in the social sciences, the humanities, is 300 pages, or if what you're looking at when you're in the STEM fields is three articles, four articles, right? Then you're looking at you're looking at a wall, you know, you're looking at a hurdle, an obstacle, 
Whereas the person who understands communication is looking at a massive opportunity, you know, a, a beautiful moment of expressive freedom. And I'm not saying it's fun to write. <laughs> I'll be the first one to go on record that writing hurts. But I'm trying to say that the understanding of communication brings that because then you realize, aha, all this that I know is mine to package. I, I, I think that that's definitely something that we need to get over. Uh, this idea of the joy of writing, the freedom, you know, to embrace that and to empower people with it. You know, once you've got your your PhD, and each has that before you've got your PhD, once you've got the skills and you can be relied upon, then to be able to pick a topic, to research it, to write about it and to share, you know, your contribution to knowledge, you know, is a wonderful thing. Um, but it's people seem to sort of be overlooking that because they're pressured for outputs be it uh attaining their degree or getting so many publications a year or publications of a certain level or whatever and um it, yes I, I i would love to be able to uh get that communication and joy of communication uh back into it to put the sort of scholarship back into sort of academia in the second part of the book, um, I named a number of the different uh, areas that you advise people on is pretty much what I would call it as well. Advise them with the data that you provide and 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 point up also, which I found very, very um, useful for the programs themselves, advising them on what they might do. In the second half of the book here, I, I made my choice of the research proposal uh, and justifying it because of my um, focus here in scholarly communication on writing. Is there in that second half something that you would yourself like to draw attention to um, on the, this uh, area of advice uh, for the program or, or the uh, candidate themselves? Well, I, I think that the, the various sort of aspects that are covered um, – Quite often, universities sideline them. They say, we can deal with the academic things. And so we get lots of books about how, you know, how to do a PhD. We get lots of books on research skills, on writing skills and that sort of thing. But I think a lot of the topics that are covered in the second half of the book um, are foundational things that quite often people are lacking and it's it's almost like jumping over the stepping stones across the sort of you know the stream you know if you haven't got the first one then you're going to have to go across a bigger gap and you're more likely to fall in and so um not only are they important aspects for people to consider um and and it's just considered that they might not even apply to people you know, uh, if we look at, let's say, education-related debt, I, I think in the US, you know, the average, average education level of education-related debt was $98,000, which is a stupendous amount of money uh, and debt for somebody to be taking on. But 
not everybody encounters that. Not everybody actually builds up any debt, you know, or has a great cost. I mean, it, it didn't cost me a great deal to do my PhD because I was sort of sat at home um, doing my own sort of research and, and sort of, you know, I had fairly, fairly much everything I needed. Um, but if you don't consider these sorts of things, when you run into them at a later date, um, either in a big way or just in a passing way, they can cause major disruptions in your process. And so, you know, are they are personal aspects, but if a university doesn't acknowledge them and doesn't prepare people for them, then they also impact on the university's efficiency in producing our future sort of researchers and scholars. And so it... Whereas before, universities have always said it's not in our domain, we don't have any jurisdiction over that. Um, I would argue that most of the points that are mentioned, yeah, in actual fact, the university does have a responsibility to bring them to students' attention because if they meet these problems um, without warning, then they have a big effect. You know, and the supervisor ends up with additional things to deal with that quite possibly go without, you know, beyond their remit um, and they don't feel equipped to deal with. And so if if they can have that shared responsibility at the beginning, and again, I come back to sort of preloading people in preparation for their courses, then the actual process is going to be potentially a lot smoother and, uh, you know, we're going to have a lot less adverse experiences. And so I think that's in everybody's interest. If the idea of universities is to bring people in to, albeit take, you know, take their money or take the government's money for their position, you know, produce research, you know, and then put them out the door as equipped researchers, then if we can um, promote that, make it a smoother process in any way, shape or form, that's a worthy investment. And so, you know, I'd like to see people um, take a bit more responsibility for people um, even before they've signed up to do their PhD, you know, let them know what's in store, let them make an informed decision, give them, you know, an insight into the tools that they need, you know, to judge whether they can do it, you know, and want to do it even. The amount of people who start their PhD and then reach the stage and they say, this isn't what I want to do anymore. You know, uh, to to change is quite difficult, and so it's change or soldier on or withdraw. You know, and so those options are quite involved for both the university and the person doing their PhD. And so, if we can head off some of this stuff through preloading their information and prepare and preparation, then we're going to get people who can uh, produce what they're required to produce to gain their awards and also to equip them for their future careers. I I would love to let that be the last word because you've so eloquently captured what the entire spirit of the second part of your book is about. And yet it it just has has jogged free another bit of uh, (laughs) discussion for me. It, it, It reminds me of one point in the book you use this idea 
this this term that the university has a duty of care. And that was something I underlined immediately because I thought it seems to be also what you're speaking to, you know, that the the program realized that here we've got a person who's entering a new life phase. I mean, there's no reason not to call it that, right? I mean, a PhD is that important, that big. I, and- I, I, I think it does belittle it, though. I, I think when we talk about it being a new life phase, it makes it very, very easy to then go back to the old, oh, it's students facing difficulties. You know, oh, which stems yeah. from them okay. moving away from home and, and encountering academic challenge for the first time. And these are genuine sort of, you know, sort of problems. Um, but our postgraduate and PhD students aren't in that situation. They're fully Yeah, okay. No, that's, yeah, yeah, I, I, I see your point there. It, we, what we need to emphasize really is the continuity going on. We need to really say that, you know, these are capable people who you are prepared to admit into your program. Um you know, they've, in a sense, already proven themselves. Let's make sure that, you know, the program makes sense. I, I, I see exactly what you mean on that point. Um, very good. I, I, where I was going, um, despite that, though, was I, I very much appreciate this, this image of the stepping stones. And, and, I, and, and I see, though, and I see that, yes, indeed, your, your points, your advice to program and student, um, I want to emphasize that again, because I found that uh, original and useful, that both be included, because both are involved, um, that this, this is a set of first stepping stones, and that what we really have, especially on the free market, is a load of material on the later stepping stones. Like you mentioned, mm-hmm. you know, uh, study skills, you mentioned, um, you know, writing guides and so on. And I see one of the dangers being when, when you allow to go outside of the university, all the things that the people actually need inside of the university. And when you you fail to set that first stepping stone for them, then the people who make it past that, the people who then need the study guide, the writing guide, and so on, you've made them slightly nervous that they're going to fall. And mm-hmm. the tendency there is that they pick up the study guide, they pick up the writing guide, or whatever other guide it is, and they hold on to it as if it was rules, instead of being, as it says in the name, a guide. What you're doing is you're making people, I find anyway, this is my view of it, less independent. I mean, one of the effects of that, not to usher them into the role or the place or whatever you might want to call it that they need to be in to start at, if you just sort of let them jump, yeah, from there on in, there's going to be an anxiety, I think, for a certain amount of people for sure. Yeah. And it's not going to be conducive to that independent researchers attitude that's that we're trying to actually inculcate. I, 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 I agree with you. Um, one of the things that you, you mentioned just earlier before I interrupted you, sorry, um, was the, no, it's a very good point. I, I, I I mean, it's very important the way that we use words. I I see what you're saying there. Um, it, it clearly situates the, the student, the candidate, the PhD at that point as being somebody who, uh, they're just going through growing pains. I, I mean, I, 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 I agree with that. One of the things that you mentioned was the duty of care. And at the, we would like to think that sort of as educators, 
we care for our students, we care for our colleagues, we care for the institution, we care for our profession. Um, And so all of this sort of comes under our professional umbrella. Um, But the fact is, the statistics uh, show that that's not the case. And so when you look at duty of care from perhaps as opposed to a moral and inferred, um, you know, position to a legal obligation, then things take on a completely different tone. Um, if you, let's say, look at uh, the health and well-being of our students and staff, I must say, um, the statistics and incidents of, you know, sort of diagnosable, you know, sort of poor well-being uh, and serious, you know, sort of, you know, health issues come under, let's say, in the UK, the Health and Safety at Work Act. And there have been a couple of cases fairly recently where people have said that universities are not preparing, you know, suitably to look after the health and well-being of the people in their care. And so they've adjusted, you know, addressed it through legal means. When you've had uh, students that have signed up for courses and then been fairly much left to their own devices, you know, this sort of disjunction between the supervisor and their student, um, and they've sort of are now beginning to take it to court and say, actually, no, this person had a duty to provide a quality product or service, you know, which are horrible words to hear come out, but, uh, and they didn't provide it. You know, they they didn't provide what they said they would provide on the tin. I, I know that in Germany, um, the, the way that PhD uh, programs were represented um, and the actual, you know, sort of, you know, production of the programs differed to the extent where you had the Ich bin Hanna, uh, you know, sort of, you know, uh, furor going on and people were obliged to disclose more information about how their, you know, services performed and that sort of thing. At the end of the day, uh, a university uh, has got a responsibility to deliver what a student has signed up for. And and that's recently been said in the UK by their education minister. Um, And they've actually encouraged people to take take the universities to court. If if you don't get what you signed up to do, you know, for, um, then take people to court because the universities are not doing anything to redress um, previous sort of failings or shortcomings. What happens is a student drops out of their program and we don't hear anything about them. They don't appear in statistics. We don't hear the specifics of their case. You know, their voice is lost. Uh, And that's not something that I would be proud to, you know, to be part of as, as an academic um, you know, as a member of a profession, as a member of, you know, of, of a society, uh, I, I, I just couldn't have that going on. And so if colleagues and institutions uh, feel the same sort of way, if they couldn't look in the mirror and say, actually, no, we can do this a lot better, then 
that puts a line under this duty of care for me. Um, and so that's what I would like to see us take more to heart. And your book helps us do that and uh, your strong words there as well. I, I, I thank you very much, uh, Nicholas. That is Nicholas Rowe and his book, The Realities of Completing a PhD, How to Plan for Success is out with Routledge. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Nicholas. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye, and until next time here on Scholarly Communication. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> 